Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are tackling the subject of bonds. Bonds play a very valuable part in portfolio construction. That said, it's horses for courses, not for everyone. We look at what they are, how they work, how interest rates can be attractive, or indeed a poison chalice, depending on what you're looking to achieve with your money. Plenty to take out of this. As always, take plenty of notes, but most importantly, make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to the Six Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Lorenzo. That intro never gets old, Mr. B. Thanks for having me now. Today, jumping straight into things, we're going to talk about the notion of fixed interest, so bonds, for example. And I don't mean the underwear brand, I mean the actual financial instrument. Let's get stuck in. Great stuff. I'm sure you've got stuck into some bonds over your time, but let's uh, move swiftly on from that terrible rebuttal and uh, get into the show. <laughs> We're leaving that one in. That's a ripper. So um, what, are, what are bonds? What are they? They're a fixed interest instrument. And we'll, we'll dive a bit deeper. Look, I'll be right up front with this. Bonds are probably not the most exciting instrument uh, to talk about, but they do play a very, very important part in certain types of portfolio construction. So we'll explore that a little bit, look at the pros and cons and and and. I guess first thing off the bat, investing directly in bonds is probably not something most retail investors do. Uh, typically, you do require a larger account size to be trading directly in bonds. Um, but that said, I use a huge amount of ETFs in that space. I think they offer a massive value add, and, and that's my preferred route for trading them. So let's dive deep down into the uh, underlying asset. Tell me a bit about bonds. Well, okay, well, I guess the first question is, what is a bond? And it's a fixed instrument asset. That's a tongue tongue twister, that one. Uh, so effectively, two parts. There's the coupon and then the yield, if you could elaborate on that for us, AB. Okay, so let's take it back to the tin tax. A bond, effectively, if you use the professional term as a promissory note, let's call it what it is. It's an IOU. So if uh, you bought a bond, you're effectively, say, you invested 100 bucks, you're giving an, uh, someone $100 and they're giving you back a piece of paper, which is the IOU. And at the maturity of the bond, whether that's in 2, 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years time, they will give you back the cash that you invested. So in some respects, there's a level of capital guarantee that goes alongside a bond. Um, that said, that capital guarantee applies at expiry or maturity right at the very end of the bond's life. So if you don't own or if you choose to buy and sell it through its lifespan, um, then the value that you might receive back may be more or indeed maybe less than what you initially put down. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting trading instrument. Let's go through an example. Hmm. I'm going to loan you $100. Very kind of you. No, I can't no believe problem. you're actually getting your wallet out. This is a first. This Tell is... me that, right? But I want 5% per annum mm -hmm. coupon repayments over a two-year maturity. Let's go through a worked example. How does it start? How does it finish? Well, I guess in the first instance, if you're going to lend somebody money, the first question mark you would have is their credit worthiness. Um, so if you're talking about governments, for example, the US government is deemed as being almost risk-free in terms of US treasuries. There's no counterparty risk. You are going to get paid back. So that would be the risk-free rate of return, right? In a, in a way, yeah. So if it's a, a more risky or a low-risk country like the US, if we're talking about government borrowing, um, then the compensation you get is relatively low. But if you're looking to lend to the Nigerian government, for example, you would deem that there's probably a small chance you may get your capital back. In order to make it enticing, you'd want way more than 5% return on that per year. So the amount of yield or the coupon, as it's called in the bond world, for a higher risk investment 
is always much, much higher than for a lower risk investment. And this in itself carries a lot of risk for people because if they're looking to generate a better quality return on their money, they can be tempted to dance with the devil, which is fine until the music stops and you realize that the credit risk is, is huge. Now, that's on a government basis. You can also look at bonds on a corporate basis. So let's say for argument's sake, you're a toll road operator and you need to raise money to put a tunnel underneath Sydney, which obviously is something that's happened many, many times. Um, the cash that you'd raise would typically be from a bond market where you say, listen, give me some money now. I'll give you cash back in 20 years time when the project is finished and up and running. And in the meantime, I'll give you 5% a year for it. The, the, the risk on that is relatively low because a toll road operator is going to be largely government subsidized if need be because it's facilitating fixing a public transport issue. So it, it technically it's a fairly low risk type investment. If you were investing in a startup company, a dot-com type company that's got this new concept that it wants to do and in order to raise money, it's gone to the bond market. That's a different kettle of fish altogether. And the prospects of you seeing your money back in, in, in 10 or 20 years time may not be there. So as a consequence, instead of maybe five or 6% return on your cash, you'd be looking for you know, substantially more than that to cover that. So the danger is that if that deal falls over, you're not getting your cash back. So you're compensated from an income perspective for taking on more risk, but bonds typically are a lower risk type instrument. And I suspect that most people will be best served keeping their portfolio fairly conservative and not having, you know, you may have heard the term junk bonds in there, high yielding bonds. Well, let's talk to that now. So bonds in terms of the actual debt based on the credit default risk are rated. Mm. So I believe they're rated by Standard & Poor's. Yeah, Moody's, Standard & Poor's are the two big ones out there. Fitch is another one, yeah. So how, how are they rated and what's the actual scale they be? Look, the, these companies come in and they make an assessment of what the underlying asset is that's uh, that's behind the bond um, you know, and what the capital structure behind that is. So you know, a, the US government, for example, is deemed as being very low risk. They just print more money if they need to pay some debt back. Whereas if you're moving down the scale into a corporate bond, Moody's or S&P, the rating agency would come in and they do effectively like a credit check as if you were you know, setting up a loan with a bank. Um, if your credit rating's not good, you gotta pay more interest. If it's low, then you get a lower rate of interest, much the same way. And, and whilst that does provide a level of safeguard for investors, I think the danger with it, and this was shown very clearly during the GFC, is that the issuer of the bond actually pays the rating agency to come in and write the research paper. So there's something of a conflict of interest there where you're being paid to write a paper up about someone's investment profile. So looking for high, uh, looking for low risk is, is, is something that's, that's, that's pretty important in the, so, so far we've talked about what a bond is. It's a promising note or an IOU, which at maturity, you get the money back that you put down. So in some respects, that can be very, very appealing um, because it's capital guaranteed, you're gonna get your cash back. However, during say times of inflation, for example, if you've got inflation that's running quite hot that we've seen over the last 18 months or so, getting that money back in two or five or 10 years time. So you put down a hundred today and you're getting a hundred back in five years time what that hundred bucks can buy you in five years time is is really minimal because the hundred dollars in five years time is probably worth maybe 60 or 70 bucks in today's money. So you're taking a, a decent sort of haircut, you're getting the physical cash back, but the buying power of that isn't there. So times of inflation bonds probably aren't the best place uh, to invest. They typically uh, are used when you have a liability match. So big pension funds use them a lot. And certainly when I was in the UK, um, our fund, uh, funds used to use them enormously to match um, income distributions for the pension fund holders based on the second component of the bond, 
which is the income factor. So we can talk a bit about that now. So we talked about the the, the, the face value of the, the IOU note, and, 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 and that's the money down that you're getting back later on down the track, assuming the person you've lent it to hasn't fallen over. Now, the income flow from it, the attractiveness of bonds is that annual income that comes from it. So that can be paid annually, quarterly, uh, you know, across a whole spectrum of different timeframes. And it's called fixed interest because let's say it was a 5% bond. You put down 100 bucks, you're gonna get $5 a year income for every $100 that you put down. So our example before, $100 put down as the face value, pretty low risk, so 5% coupon per mm-hmm. annum over two years. Mm-hmm. I would get $5 back this year, $5 back next year, and, and then the 100. So I'd end up with 110 bucks. That's correct, yeah. So you've made 10% over two years effectively on that, and your counterparty risk given you lend it to me is pretty low. <laughs> but when we talk about this from a proper investment perspective, I mean, some of these big corporations can be doing this on a tens of millions of, maybe hundreds of millions of billions dollars. Right? In some instances, yeah. Wow. It, it, it can become really quite vast. So the the actual percentage uh, or dollar income you can get from that is based on what the initial value of the bond was. Bond's worth $100. And if it's got a what's called a 5% coupon, uh, then you're going to get $5 a year fixed interest. Now, what happens if inflation goes up, as we've just spoken to, or interest rates start to move higher? And let's say interest rates have moved up to 10%, hypothetically. So you've now got a promissory note that you're earning 5% per year on, which not many people are going to be that excited about earning 5% a year if interest rates are 10 So how does the bond market compensate for that? And the answer is really simple. You're still going to receive $5 a year income. But to make the percentage income on it more attractive, what would happen is the value of the bond actually goes down in terms of its value. At the end of the two years, you'll get your 100 back. But in the meantime, the value of that bond will drop in order to improve the percentage return to make it more attractive. So if interest rates are 10% and you're getting $5 a year on a $100 bond, to get the yield as a percentage up on this is quite complicated. You'd need to see the bond priced at 50 bucks and still paying $5 a year, which effectively is a 10% return. So it's comparable to interest rates then. So in times of higher interest rates or inflation, bond prices actually diminish quite substantially. It's okay if you're holding it to the end, but if you're in a situation where you have to trade out of it during its lifetime, and a very good example of this fairly recently, Silicon Valley Bank, where they needed to put their hands on cash, and because interest rates have moved up, the actual value of bonds that they'd held had dropped below what they'd paid for them. That's effectively what caused the drama within the bank. So if you're holding a bond, you probably want to hold it to maturity. It's a great example. I really like that, AB, and I guess that that poses the case for the stock market last year, mm-hmm. where because interest rates were moving up so quickly and the yield on bonds was increasing comparatively with that, it was less attractive for investors to be in the stock market undertaking more risk through equities and rather parlay that into bonds where the rate of return was actually okay, right? And, and the risk potentially is lower. And you know, and that's a really good point. If you, if you look at, say, an equity market where the, the dividend yield might be 5%, and in the US, for example, with interest rates moving in the way that they have, a two-year treasury is paying 5.5% with zero counterparty risk, got the US government sitting behind it. Well, which one from a risk perspective is offering you the best return? You might get some upside in the shares, but from an income perspective, you take the treasury any day of the week because it's a lower risk and comparable income perspective. Now, of course, yes, there may be some upside in the stock, but of course, 
there may well be some downside in the stock too if the stock drops. And in times of crisis, there's a very good probability that that can happen. And you see money, it's got a flight to quality or a flight to safety, quite often move out of the stock market into bonds. So if you are a retail investor, but you mentioned at the start, it's not something commonly used. Mm. Is it something that you would ever have exposure to, say, for example, in a super fund maybe? Well, yes, you could if you were looking to generate a cash flow, uh, which bonds are very, very good for. Um, my personal preference, and I think this may be either an age or a skill-based thing, is that I can't see myself owning bonds any time in my lifetime because I know I've got the skill set and the ability to be able to generate a better quality yield or income with decent levels of risk management in play that give me a better income and a lower risk profile and much, much more flexibility. But I'm also aware that I'm probably not the norm, probably on a few metrics, but <laughs> when, it, when it comes to investing. So from a retail investor's perspective, so if I take my father as an example, he loves bonds because he loves the, I can lock my money down. I haven't got to think or worry about it anymore. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a widower. He's on his own. He travels a lot. And you know we have good conversations about his investments and help and all that sort of stuff. But the bottom line is he just likes that notion of that regular income and it suits him perfectly because it's very easy for him to budget. He's still saving, but you know, he, he's able to budget and do all these different things knowing that his monthly income is going to be X. So there's definitely a role for people that are looking for that certainty. And again, from his perspective, knowing that the counterparty in, in the case of the bond portfolio that he has is very, very, very low risk. So he knows he's going to get his capital back. He can sleep at night. And he, he kind of leaves the stock market stuff to me. So if we kind of break this down, then if we think about the pros of having mm. a bond or exposure to bonds, guaranteed income, very low risk relative to other forms of investment. Mm. What are the downsides of having bonds? They're clunky to trade. If you're trying to trade individual bonds uh, as an investor, you do need to have a bit of cash to do that. So I guess that that is one of the problems. Secondly, I think they are a little bit of a head spin, and this podcast may prove to be that for for some people too. And if you listen to this, game, I'm not quite sure I got that. It's okay. Most people don't because it's such a an odd instrument insofar as when prices are falling, the yield goes up, and when the yield goes down, prices are moving higher. It's a it's a it's sort of negative correlation between the two. So it's, it is a bit of a head spin for people to get their head around. Um, I think you know it's it, it's a little bit clunky to trade. You can go to a bond broker uh, who who can trade them. One of my neighbours actually is a, is a bond broker. Um, alternatively, you can invest in bond funds where the the lifting is done for you, and you just simply get the the yield uh, without having to do any of the work, and that can be very appealing. Personally, the, the exposure I like with bonds is within the ETF space because they're very, very easy to trade in the same manner that shares are. Uh, they're nice and liquid, particularly in the US where I do most of my trading. Uh, and I guess the advantage that those ETFs then bring is that I can trade either rising yields and profit from that using a set of instruments, or if I feel that yields are, are starting to slide down, I've got an alternate instrument I can trade and, and profit from the price rise of bonds moving higher. Which I know so, you made a fortune through the last two years. Yeah, it's been brilliant. I mean, you know, these two instruments, TBT and TLT, uh, have just been like the perfect left-right combination in terms of being able to trade. I'm going to say a reasonably predictable event, which is the approach that the US um, Fed Federal Reserve have taken with their interest rate moves. Bonds and interest rates are very, very closely correlated. And so if you're dealing with a, a central bank that's telegraphing very clearly what their intentions are, then being able to pin the tail on the donkey and, and, and trade the bond market on the back of that has actually been 
probably a lot easier than the stock market over the last couple of years. Now we're getting to a phase where interest rates are you know, tapping out in the US particularly. Um, that, that situation will change, but they've done their job in about a couple of years of some really decent profit out of that. So yeah, I, I, I don't see myself owning bonds directly as most investors want, but I can still trade the benefits from them uh, through ETFs, which make it a much easier way of trading. And I can wrap some options around that and really, really, really have some fun with it. So final question for you, AB, before we wrap up, are there any other instruments or fixed int- fixed interest instruments that are similar to bonds? So mortgage-backed securities, yeah. for Mort- example? Mortgage-backed securities are a good example. They work in a very similar way where, um, again, you've got uh, an amount of money that's been lent out. But I guess the difference is that a mortgage-backed security uh, is actually securitized. There's, there's a real property that sits behind it in the case of a liquidation that's needed. So the credit risk on those can be better and sometimes can be a lot worse as we saw through the GFC. So mortgage-backed securities are certainly one, and that's an enormous market uh, in the US. Uh, You can also look at things like mortgage funds, which work in the same way as a bond fund. Um, Again, mortgage funds, um, and and I mentioned at the start about the danger of chasing after higher yields. If I look back at that sort of time through sort of 2008, 9, 10, probably 2007 to 2011, that timeframe, which was sort of pre and then post-GFC, a lot of retirees were looking for good levels of income and mortgage funds were offering yeah, 13 14%, which is very, very attractive in a lower interest rate environment. You think, well, that's great. It's it's a mortgage fund, which means it's backed by a, a security of some description and I'm getting this 13 or 14% a year. I, I always go back to nothing is free in the investment space. And if you're getting paid over the odds, there is a risk associated with that. So let's take a look at the IOU that you're effectively investing in. If you're getting 13 or 14%, you must be lending to something that's a little bit questionable in terms of its ability to repay things. And as it happened, a lot of those mortgage funds did indeed blow up and go bust through the GFC and for the investors only to realize that most of the time the collateral that they had was a second mortgage over a property. So in terms of if you imagine you've got a house that's worth a million bucks and it's got a $700,000 mortgage on it, there's 300 grand's worth of equity in it, um, that first mortgage is, is the first person to get paid out when the house is sold. If you hold a second mortgage behind that, you only get what's left on the table after that. So in other words, your ability to cover your debt obligation is very, very limited as a worst case scenario. And I saw an awful lot of people lose money uh, through those kinds of funds. So that notion of chasing after higher yield comes with a significant level of risk when it comes to securitized instruments such as bonds or mortgage-backed securities and mortgage funds. So always be very, very careful with those. You know, thinking about what we've talked about and, and, and over the years, I've had the chance to work with some incredible people, probably one of the best single bond traders um, I've ever worked with and had the privilege to know because the guy is just a dead set, really nice guy, a legend. There's a guy in the UK called John Sharman. John, John's retired. He's probably living on his island somewhere. He's made plenty of money from his trading exploits and uh, and is just a fantastic guy. He just had the perfect temperament for the bond market and I just saw him kill it for, for a really significant period of time. Expert in his field. Bonds aren't my place to play. I tap into the value add that they can bring to portfolios as and when needed. But I think using an ETF to trade bonds makes a lot more sense from a retail investor's perspective because it gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of what you're doing. I guess the key thing to take away from bonds is that inverse relationship between price and, and the income. If the income's going up, the price is going down and, and of course, vice versa. Secondly, understand it is an IOU. So if you're lending someone money, make sure they're in a position to pay it back, rule number one. So those credit 
ratings associated with bonds a higher quality credit rating means your money is safer, the trade-off is your yield is going to be significantly lower. Um, so understand the quality of the person you're lending the money to if it's an IOU. And then thirdly is to recognize the, the, the way that the, 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 the income component, the yield on that bond will move relative to where interest rates and of course where inflation are. Inflation is bad news for bond investors because it totally denigrates what their return is over time. They do play a role though, and maybe in times of lower inflation, if you've got to match uh, an income flow, like as I said, using the example of my father, they do place a, 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 a really handy um, sort of slot in the tool belt, but uh, it's horses for courses. And as I said, I'd be very surprised in this lifetime if I'm a bond holder. <laughs> Me too. Beautifully said, AB, that's a really comprehensive rundown on that. Thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure, anytime. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.